This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, and I'm Jonathan. So, this short retelling of the life of Matilda of Flanders, wife of William the Conqueror, well, it's a little, how should we say, everywhere, admittedly, so I'm trying to approach them as one continuous thread broken up into a few pieces here. But more than anything, I hope you're all enjoying learning about Matilda as much as I am. She's she's something, that's for sure. So let's just jump into another chapter in the life of the Conqueror's wife. But first, let me urge each of you to hit the subscribe button on whatever podcast app you're using and to share the show with others you know and on your social media. Also, again, great stuff is still happening on Patreon as well. In this Patreon series, we'll be following the goings-on of Wales, Scotland, Ireland, and Normandy, and of course others, as William struggles with the fierce rebelliousness of the proud Anglo-Saxons he just unseated in England. So if you're curious about the whole picture, you'll only find it on Patreon. All right, here we go, folks. Today's episode, episode 79, is entitled Behind Every Great Man, Part 2. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoy the show. In the town of Yew, the Count of Flanders arrived with his rather large contingent, consisting of his wife, his nobility, his personal guard, and of course, his daughter Matilda. William arrived a day earlier, we're told, having sent many folks ahead of him to prepare the castle and its chapel for the festivities. William's personal guard, consisting of the likes of Roger of Montgomery and his half-brother Bishop Odo, arrived alongside his mother, Herleva, and his stepfather, Herluin. William's Flemish guests were showered with the riches of Normandy, no expense spared to prove this bastard status of his would in no way hinder William's influence across the kingdom. Now, there is some dispute as to where exactly the wedding between William and Matilda took place, but most seem to point to either you or Rouen. I'm not exactly sure it really matters, though, as the most important thing to come of the wedding was the joining of two of France's wealthiest and most influential principalities, principalities who are also making quite a name for themselves outside of France as well. Now, Tracy Borman, in her book Queen of the Conqueror that I'm using as an anchor text for this whole string of episodes for my research here on Matilda, well, Tracy Borman mentions a few more details about the wedding I've yet to find anywhere else. She writes, quote, An inventory of the treasures of Bayou Cathedral taken in 1476 by Louis de Harcourt, a member of of its clergy, describes two gowns of quote-unquote incomparable richness that were believed to be the wedding clothes of William and Matilda. The pair of matching cloaks owed more to a desire to flaunt their wealth than to exhibit good taste. William's garment was covered with small golden crosses to emphasize his piety, as well as flowers, cameos, and precious stones. On the back was a band of cloth of gold with richly embroidered images, But he did not entirely give himself over to extravagant dress for the occasion, because among the treasury of the cathedral was a helmet that he had worn during the ceremony. It seems that even on his wedding day, he was determined to maintain his warrior reputation, end quote. 
As for Matilda's gown, I'm sorry, but I, I just could not find any details on that. Now, great pains were made to legitimize this marriage. If you remember, Pope Leo IX, who was seen as a staunch reformer of the Catholic Church mid-century, was pressured to denounce the marriage of William and Matilda on the grounds of consanguinity. They were but five degrees apart genetically, while the church maintained a semi-strict seven degrees of separation. This was, of course, conveniently overlooked in certain circumstances, but the threat posed by not only William, but of the joining of the Norman and Flemish noble houses did nothing to quell the frustration of a Holy Roman Emperor who had his sights set on Flanders as of late. In the end, as we've discussed already on, in earlier podcasts, William simply ignored the Pope's decree against his marriage and stayed the course. And anyone who had a problem with it was welcome to join him for dinner to, uh, well, you know, discuss the matter, we'll say. Between what we learned on the last episode and into this one, Borman nails down the bigger implications of the marriage of William and Matilda perfectly. Quote, William and Matilda's marriage was affected by and would reflect the shifting political climate of Europe. As such, it sheds light on the inception of a new balance of power in the medieval world, with the rise of the papacy as a force to be reckoned with by secular rulers. End quote. Pope Leo IX was no slouch, if you remember, and it was really he who set the papacy on this path, a path taken up by most of the rest of the 11th century's popes, a path that included, at its outset, a rift in the year 1054, cutting the Catholic and Eastern Orthodox churches in two for the next millennium and counting. Uniquely, Borman continues, Matilda's life bridged these two stages, and the story of her marriage to William would be played out against the transition from the old to the new Europe, end quote. And this is a fascinating point to make. See, now in my 79th episode of the podcast, not to mention the dozen or so on Patreon already, the 11th century has shaped up in my own mind as one of the most pivotal centuries in the last 20, from the first day of it to the last day of it. The 11th century was a century of massive change, stacking up in my mind with other pivotal whole centuries, such as the 4th century, the 14th century, and the 20th century. Some stand out, while others simply hold pivotal decades or even years. But this century ushers in a universal change to human history, and I can only hope that I'm succeeding in conveying this on this podcast. Specifically, to Borman's point, I can see how she puts William and Matilda at odds. It seems to me that Matilda is a symbol of proud and powerful through, or excuse me, though waning, I'm referring to her size here, old world, the world of widespread European paganism, of frontiers, and of legends, a place ruled by powerful rulers and overswept with bandits and wild men behind every tree and over every hill. The blood of legends coursed through her veins, and her pedigree was next to none. Now, no one can deny Matilda's ancient pedigree. Borman writes, quote, Her father's male forebears had the most distinguished lineage of any non-royal house in Europe, and had descended from the great Charlemagne, founding father of the French and German empires. End quote. And Borman reminds us that Matilda's great-great-grandfather, Baldwin II, had married Alfred the Great's daughter, too, 
quote-unquote, an alliance with Saxon blood that would prove useful to Matilda. To boot, on her maternal side, her grandfather was the King of France, and when he died in 1031, the year of her birth, her uncle Henry took the French crown. Her other uncle was Duke Robert of Burgundy to boot. Now juxtapose that with William of Normandy. Certainly, to give the appropriate credit where it's due, William's blood contained the likes of Rollo the Walker, but it stretched, at least in record, only as far back as the late 800s, with any historical accuracy. In modern parlance, we'd call that new money, at least the way they saw it. And though his grandfather, uncle, aunt, and father all had influence and wealth and sway, he was still, by mere circumstance, well, new to the European forefront. We're talking about comparing a lowly vikinger who happened to become so much of a pest to the king of France that he was given a plot of land out of exasperation, not honor. Also, William was born of a nobleman out of wedlock to a tanner's daughter. He was a bastard in the truest sense. He was under constant attack by assassins as young as eight years old, and it took jumping out of windows and, you know, watching those around him die, sometimes literally right in front of him, to see him into and out of the battles with his own nobility. He had a target on his back the moment his father left him for the Holy Land. William was illegitimate. He was never supposed to be admitted to the French nobility, yet here he was marrying into some of the thickest royal blood on the continent. So different were William and Matilda, we can't help but entertain this idea that this one marriage, consummated around the year 1051 or so, represented the planetary pivot history would make damn near dead center of the middle century of the last 2,000 years. As Matilda represents the old ways, the old traditions, the old structures of Europe, the Europe that saw the collapse of the once mighty Roman Empire, the ancient bulwark against barbarism, the city, on, the city on the hill of civilization, the darkness that befell Christianity as the rise of Islam threatened it from its very heart of the Holy Land. As Matilda represents that world and the royalty who mostly just slipped into the role of their parents, William represents an age that no one really could have foreseen at the time. His unconventional rise to power may have been kick-started by a gift of office from his ducal father. Anyone who thinks it was that simple simply doesn't wish to learn the truth. William fought for every single inch, for better or for worse. Matilda grew up in the systems and traditions defined by centuries of the nobility in her veins, while William was never a member of the nobility, not inherently. He scratched at every surface. He clawed for every foothold. He shed blood, both his own and the blood of others. He didn't belong, so he made himself belong. He forced everyone around him to accept him, whether they liked it or not. He refused to be denied the honor he felt he earned, having done far more than anyone else in France or elsewhere to earn his place at court. And in light of this, who more defines the last millennium more than William, a man who destroyed the expectations of the lowborn, who commanded a sense of respect, despite the target on his back, who accepted where he came from and refused to accept how others defined him, a man who forged his own way and lifted others along with him. 
Now, be careful. I'm not suggesting that he was some, you know, freedom fighter, some revolutionary who had the lowly peasantry in his heart and sought to change their fortunes and lift them to higher stations in life. You know, that couldn't be further from the truth, as we know. William also embodied other aspects of the last millennium that aren't quite as rosy, like, like a steadfast commitment to, you know, demolishing his rivals, and even those he may think are rivals. William, as we're learning, treated his new subjects after Hastings horribly, on par with some of the worst leaders in history, without question. But he represents the first sparks of a new millennium that would slowly develop into the century that eventually saw to the abolition of state-sponsored slavery, the creation of modern states that would embrace free market principles, which have done more than any other system, period, to lift the poor out of poverty and allow them to become independent players in the game of life. The distinction, also, between state-granted privileges with natural or God-given rights. I'm not saying that William fought for these things, but what I'm saying is that just like William, folks over the last millennium after him began to crush the old ideas that kept regular folks down, to eradicate the notion that who you were born to should determine the course of your life. In those ways, William certainly stands as foreshadowing, and the marriage between he and Matilda was the marrying of the old world with the new. And in this marriage, which side was the sturdy structure and which side reached beyond its current boundaries to change its predetermined path? You know, the new world, so to speak. Well, that role is played by William. But Matilda, our symbol of the old ways, she was ever the sturdy structure upon which William was able to do everything else he wanted to do. I think of Isaac Newton's I Stand Upon the Shoulders of Giants quote, Though William had without question proven himself on the continent, one can't help but question his ability to do what he did at Hastings without the constant support and the rock-solid dependency placed upon that tiny four-foot, two-inch wife of his. Matilda, she was just as much to thank, or I suppose blame, depending on how you look at it all, with William becoming the conqueror, as William was for the events of 1066 and beyond. Through it all, though, Matilda kept the animal tendencies of Williams in check, a veritable beauty to her beast, if there ever was one, and it would be a marriage that would change history forever. Between the issue of consanguinity that pitted William and Matilda against William's own uncle, Archbishop Mauget of Rouen, causing the Archbishop to be exiled from Normandy for a time, we talked about it earlier, and the variety of threats to their duchy from the likes of the Bretons to the King of France himself, well, William and Matilda, by all accounts, remained true to one another. Their marriage might have been one based on, on a genuine love for the other in an era when such thoughts about marriage didn't really exist at least not in a societally accepted or promoted practice. It's just, you know, another way that William and Matilda broke from tradition. No doubt, by marrying Matilda of Flanders, William sought to create some inroads with the royalty in France, but King Henry I wasn't having any of that nonsense. Nice or not, Matilda did absolutely nothing to soften the king to Duke William, not after all that Henry had seen William capable of doing in the past. In fact, it seemed to galvanize the king's resolve against William, against the Normans in general. 
to put the lad in check once and for all. Refer to earlier episodes about William for the details here, but as a reminder, these were the days when King Henry I of France seemed to lend his support to anyone willing to pit himself against the dominant young duke in the north. 1053, 1054, and 1057 marked three different invasions and supported rebellions that King Henry I was a part of. He supported Archbishop Maget's rebellion, William of Arc's rebellion, and, of course, Geoffrey the Hammer of Anjou's warmongering. All to no real successful outcome, mind you. As we know, Matilda was a firm supporter of her husband, but she was also pretty close to her Flemish family as well, who in turn were quite, of course, close to the king. As Borman notes, quote, the conflict between her husband and her own family must have been a cause of some embarrassment for Matilda, end quote. I mean, who hasn't been there, am I right? But Matilda was no longer loyal first to her father and mother back in Flanders. She was married into the Norman ducal family, a bastard duke or not. William was hers, and she was William's. She was loyal to William and to William alone. Borman writes, quote, In the midst of these hostilities, there was no question where Matilda's own loyalties lay. She was the very model of a dutiful wife, quote-unquote, near-perfect, according to one recent observer, and William's, quote-unquote, loyal friend, in the words of a late 12th-century chronicler, Langtoff, end quote. I think it's important to stop and consider her role in this particular situation. Matilda certainly wasn't sitting back and, you know, throwing her support behind her husband with no thought to the rest of those involved. She most likely very much had her parents and her uncle in mind at all times. Borman states, quote, Having been raised in one of the most distinguished courts in Europe, Matilda was well aware of the duties expected of her as a consort. Principal among these was the need for diplomacy. In a society dominated by violence and warfare, medieval women were looked to as peacemakers and mediators. End quote. Now, Borman goes on to quote a few other medieval texts about the role of women in the rough and deadly arena of medieval politics. But the one she quotes from the one she quotes from the Exeter book written in the 900s is one that stood out to me. It reads, quote, "The woman must excel as one cherished." among her people, and be buoyant of mood, keep confidences, be open-heartedly generous with horses and with treasures, in deliberation over the mead, in the presence of the troops of companions, she must always and everywhere greet first the chief of those princes, and instantly offer the chalice to her lord's hand, and she must know what is prudent for them both as rulers of the hall." End quote. Basically, where men were often the muscle behind the operation, women held down the arena of patient deliberation, diplomacy, and reason. Essentially, the, you know, the brains behind the operation. Now, just about every man out there would certainly agree with this statement. I doubt it's just me. Borman writes, quote, Matilda's obvious aptitude for the role of duchess quickly won her new husband's admiration and respect, end quote. Now, William trusted her with just about everything, and given the chance and the time to practice, she probably would have ridden into battle alongside him if given the chance. Okay, maybe not literally, but I mean, I wouldn't want to deal with her, is what I'm saying. I wouldn't want to deal with either Matilda nor William. They just seemed to complement each other perfectly for the century they lived in. 
And it was during these first 10 years or so that Matilda fulfilled one of her roles in the marriage, which was giving William an heir to his duchy. Their firstborn they named Robert, after William's father. The problem was that Robert, most likely born in 1053 during the then unresolved issue of consanguinity, wasn't, and this is key, wasn't recognized by the church. So Robert, in the first years of his life, as far as the church was concerned, was as illegitimate as William was in terms of being a rightful heir. However, as far as William and Matilda were concerned, the church could take a long walk off a short pier. And if William was the epitome of a daddy's boy, Robert, he was the epitome of a mama's boy. Matilda, as Borman puts it, doted on the boy. And throughout the rest of her life, Matilda would remain unwaveringly loyal to Robert. However, don't misunderstand. William, like any man in his position, was overjoyed to have an heir. But for whatever reason, he and Robert just didn't click with one another. The history books remember Robert as Robert Curthose. And it seems that the nickname wasn't given to him out of affection or admiration. It means short legs or short pants or something like that. And evidence suggests William was the one who gave it to him. Borman writes, quote, With Robert's birth, the seeds of eventual discord between Matilda and her husband were sown. End quote. I suppose we'll discover what she means by that fairly soon on the podcast. But during the 1050s, William and Matilda, as we've said, were the epitome of a happy couple. And I'm talking happy, if you know what I mean. Now, I should say that we know two things for certain regarding their children. One, Robert Curthose was born first most likely in uh, 1053. And two, the Order of the Sons, is what we also know. Unfortunately, as with many families a thousand years ago, we know only the children who survived into adulthood, or at least those who were present at charters and whatnot. So, so know that Matilda and William most likely endured horrible losses throughout the 1050s and maybe even into the 1060s, the two decades that Matilda, it seems, was to be, well quite honestly, continuously pregnant, it seemed like. So, in addition to Robert Curthose arriving sometime around the year 1053, the happy couple welcomed Richard next in 1054, we believe. Sometime between presumably late 1054 and late 1055, their daughter Adeliza was born. In 1056, they welcomed Cecilia. In late 1056 to early 1057, William II was born though history remembers him as William Rufus due to what we can assume was red hair, as Rufus is a derivation of red in Latin. We aren't sure what years exactly, but next came a couple of daughters named Constance and Adela between the years of 1058 and, get this, 1067. Now that's quite a jump, and Matilda, no doubt at this point, probably earned the right to tell the old man to back off for a change, but seeing the pattern, I'm not inclined to think this, that this was the case. Honestly, I think that this was also a very busy and a very stressful time in and around the duchy. What with the Bretons, the Angevins, and the king himself, actually, trying to depose William. Who knows? Maybe they had a string of horrific miscarriages and tragedies with their infants and toddlers. I mean, God forbid, but that was a very real possibility, as we know. And one would be inclined to wonder if they were, in fact, finished after a certain spell, with having children in general. And if that was the case, I'd, I'd also say Matilda earned it. 
if it weren't for the birth of Henry, their youngest child, born in 1067. Now, did you notice the year there? 1067. The fact that Henry would be born up to a year after William took the crown of England would play heavily into the future events as he was the only one of William and Matilda's children to be born, as they say, in the purple. Henry was, by definition, born a prince. The others were simply not born into royalty. Again, a claim, as we'll see on a future episode, that is not to be taken without some gravitas. Orderic Vitalis writes of Matilda's good fortune in childbirth, saying, quote, She bore her distinguished husband the offspring he desired, both sons and daughters, end quote. And Borman sung her praises, understandably so, I, understandably so, so I might add, about Matilda's sheer ability to rear so many children. She writes, quote, That such a diminutive woman should prove so fecund and so resilient to the many hard years of childbearing that she endured has been remarked upon with surprise by a number of historians. We do not know if Matilda had any miscarriages or if any of her children died in infancy, but the sheer number of children who survived into adulthood suggests that there cannot have been many such instances. At a time when knowledge of obstetrics was rudimentary and riddled with superstition, and childbirth was fraught with danger for both mother and infant, this success rate defied all the odds. That Matilda herself apparently remained healthy throughout her childbearing years is also remarkable. Women of this period, even those from the upper classes, often suffered from chronic anemia owing to the lack of protein and iron in their diets, which meant that their life expectancy was shorter than that of men. Infant mortality was also high, with between 15 to 20% of children dying in the first year and 30% by the age of 20, end quote. It's heartbreaking enough to consider the, you know, the atrocious infant mortality rates of the past, specifically here in the 11th century, but we often forget about the other side of the same coin. Much like those suffering from horrible disease or, or disabilities have, well, they have another side of the coin as well as in the case of the caretaker, also suffering and going through his or her own tremendous hardships. The mother giving birth underwent an unthinkable amount of suffering and pain, and oftentimes chronic ailments resulting from bringing a child into this world. And each of every one of us is a product of such women. A little gratitude's in order if you ask me, but... But let's think of Matilda's role in its political sense now. Her single duty, politically, was to produce heirs, specifically male heirs, though as we know today, this was hardly up to Matilda. <laughs> and Matilda fulfilled her political role in the duchy magnificently. Doing so catapulted her esteem and respect from others into the stratosphere, without question, and what came with such clout was a boost in her husband's political standing as well, which in turn resulted in her husband's ongoing admiration for her. Borman offers the following about medieval marriages. Quote, there was no equality in marriage. The woman was the subservient partner, and if she failed to provide her husband with an heir, then all the blame would be placed upon her. That William and Matilda pr produced such a large family bolstered their dynastic ambitions. End quote. Matilda, I repeat, 
played an enormous role in the prestige William earned throughout his duchy, as well as outside of it. Now, unlike many other men of his day, this fact did not slip past William. Now, raising her children was also singularly placed upon Matilda, up to a certain age. At the age of seven, as we've explained on the podcast in previous episodes, boys began their immersion into the martial arts, you could say, while the girls stayed on their current track, learning the liberal arts. For the Lay family, boys were thrown into hunting, self-defense, building, and farming almost as soon as they could walk, while girls of similarly early ages were thrust into the world of holding down the homestead. This was super similar to noble children as well, with one notable exception. After the age of seven, again, where the boys learned wrestling, hunting, swordplay, horsemanship, and learning the ins and outs of knightly custom, girls continued studying the arts of the reading and writing of Latin, as well as household arts such as knitting, cooking, and the customs held by each region that allowed for the maximization of their fathers, husbands, and sons' prestige. I'm not sure where Borman gets her next information, but she insists on Matilda's well-established piety being imbued into her children during the first seven or eight years. She says, quote, It certainly seems that Matilda taught her children to recite nursery rhymes, the Lord's Prayer, and other devotional exercises, and also instructed them in Norman French and perhaps a little Flemish, end quote. I have no reason to doubt Borman, as long as it as it's long held and accepted that both Matilda and William were deeply pious, and they proved so with a life of showering abbeys and monasteries with gifts and funding, as well as the creation of, you know, innumerable religious buildings and sites, as well as hospitals. And Matilda wasn't the only one who showed great affection for her children, though. Sure, William and his firstborn, Robert, never really got on well with each other, an issue that will cause quite a bit of contention within the marriage later, let me tell you. But William, it's said in various sources, absolutely adored his third-born son and namesake, William Rufus. William of Malmesbury writes of William Sr., showing William Jr. all about the quote-unquote knightly exercises, to the point that a young William Rufus would quote-unquote compete with his elders in courtesy, with his contemporaries in courtly duties. Now, as for the boys, William, as was common for noblemen of the time, included his sons in meetings and councils, and even the occasional foray onto the battlefield. Robert witnessed charters as early as eight years old. Chroniclers note the interesting dynamic of William and Matilda's marriage, though. It's curious how they say William showed his boys the intricacies of dealing with other men, both friends and adversaries, as well as, well as how to negotiate from a place of strength, while Matilda also inserted herself quite uncommonly for an 11th century noblewoman into her boys' political educations by teaching them the need for patience and a certain je ne sais quoi, a certain suppression of that good old reactionary violence that alpha men seem to champion during high-stress situations. These kiddos, it might be safely said, these boys and girls might have had the strongest parenting of all medieval families in the 11th century. Quite a bold claim, but if the chroniclers are to be believed, William and Matilda both made a great case for the accolade. It seemed like a pretty strong tag team effort in Rouen. 
The nuts and bolts of survival was certainly important in those days, obviously, and of course there were stark differences between the lessons a peasant child might have to learn compared to one born in the lap of relative luxury. But survival wasn't the only thing kids had to grapple with almost immediately. Religious instruction during the Middle Ages could have been seen as just as important as physical survival. One must protect him or herself against the slings and arrows and pitfalls of the natural and the civilized worlds. But they also had to be on constant vigil for the same when it comes to their eternal soul. And these kiddos, born to William and Matilda, were in some pretty pious hands. As we know, Matilda, for instance, is praised and applauded in just about every chronicle she's mentioned in. Church attendance was mandatory, and not just on Sundays. You know, to be clear, attending church was an everyday occurrence for William and Matilda's brood, as well as attendance in councils and charters when the ducal family endowed various churches, abbeys, and monasteries with funds to build bigger or build more. These kids were in the presence of religious clergy of all statuses from their earliest memories, and nothing would change throughout their childhood and early adult lives. We know the fate of noble sons, but what of the daughters besides marriage? Well, noble daughters were first and foremost valuable for the alliances they could forge, but every now and then one would find herself in the care of an abbess. In the case of Cecilia, William and Matilda's eldest daughter, we believe, who in June 1066 was committed to the Abbey of the Holy Trinity in Cain as an offering to God to bless his mission to invade England and become its new king. However, as for the other daughters of the ducal household, as Borman states, marriage for a noble daughter wasn't exactly that simple. She writes, quote, Even for the daughters of a distinguished family, finding a suitable husband was not necessarily a straightforward undertaking. There was an abundance of marriageable girls compared to the boys, which meant that many were obliged to follow the celibate life of the cloister, there being no other option, end quote. Cecilia wasn't alone in joining the Abbey, but the reasons were peculiar when you think about it. Borman continues with a bit that shows how awesome Matilda was, especially during her time period. She writes, quote, Despite the limited prospects that faced her daughters, Matilda resolved that they should have aspirations far beyond the desire to please a prospective husband. In her view, learning should not be the privilege of men alone. She knew from her own education that this was one sphere in which women could hold sway. End quote. Matilda was a visionary. Though she wasn't the first woman to think such thoughts and enjoy such privilege, the prospects of women during this particular era make Matilda an outlier. And to give credit where credit's due, we must include William in this as well. According to the social and political norms of the day, William didn't have to put up with such an ambitious wife. I'm not saying it's right, but I do assert that it's just the way it was. William should receive a little credit for respecting his brilliant, ambitious wife and allowing her to raise her daughters in the same ways that she was raised. I mean, let's be honest, William couldn't have opposed it. He was absolutely head over heels with this woman. He adored her and respected her as an equal. So why wouldn't he wish the same for his daughters? Don't get me wrong, the guy was an animal in so many other ways, but credit, again, should be given to both parents here. At the end of the day, Borman states unequivocally, quote, All of Matilda's children would be remarkable for their level of education, something that would not have been the case if their upbringing had been left 
to Duke William, end quote. It was Matilda who made the ducal household work, and believe me, all of you awesome wives out there listening are shrugging your shoulders like, well, yeah, I know, I know, but I'm just trying to explain the obvious here, I guess. Matilda was a boss. She groomed her daughters for marriage, her sons for leadership, and both of them to not take any crap from anybody. But as we parents already know, love and devotion to their educations and their hearts only go so far. At some point, we begin to realize that these little miniature us's are actually their own people. I know, the audacity. And we'll see just how different this particular litter actually was as our story unfolds here. Until next time.